I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to The Writer's Routine, the creative person's podcast. My name is Dan Simpson. Now, this is the show where we get tips and advice from some of the best authors around on how to come up with ideas, how to jot them down on paper to get them published, and most importantly, how to plan your day for maximum efficiency in mind. Today, we're chatting to one of this country's most successful thriller writers. It's probably not the most boastful way to start my own show, but I think this week I've subscribed to like three or four new podcasts about all sorts of stuff as well. Uh, Are you the same? When you see a show, when you're scanning through the podcast store and it's about something that you're interested in, you get really excited, you download it straight away and then you think, how am I going to find the time to listen to this? So that was what I was doing. And I want to say thank you to you right now for finding the time to listen to The Writer's Routine. And I need your help to get other people to find us and listen in as well. This is the bit where I get a bit needy and naggy. You know, a bit like a a worried mother chucking her scarf at her son in the middle of September before he leaves the house. Because it looks a bit chilly and you won't feel the benefit if you don't have it. Yeah, I, I need to ask you, please leave us a review, some stars on the iTunes podcast store. That's the best way that people can find out about this show. It's not done on the amount of downloads. It's on surge of momentum, on velocity. So if you can find the energy to help us out, that would be great. Just leave us a review Uh, find writer's routine on the itunes podcast store our guest on the writer's routine this week is simon toyne he is the best-selling author of the sanctus and now solomon creed series and ever since he was young he had a dream of telling stories and he started working in tv as a producer amongst other things to help share those tales but it wasn't enough and as a sort of midlife crisis it's fine he said those words to me it's okay Uh, he packed up his life his wife his kids and he took them all to france for high Half a year off with the dream of finally writing a thriller. Not just getting down a regular, romantic, whimsical notion of a book, though. Uh, He needed this to be successful uh, because he wanted to make a career out of it. 
So we analysed how to get that done. We'll find out more about that in the chat. Let me very quickly mention today's weird and wonderful writer's routine. It's from Charles Dickens. Usually I have to give a little cryptic descriptive tease on the author for the middle of the show. Don't need that with Dickens, I think. We'll get his distinguished diary in a little bit. First, it's the author Simon Toyne with his writing routine. I've got an office... Um, and I kind of spend uh, enormous amounts of time and energy avoiding going to it. I figure partly because uh, I, I did spend, before I was a, a novelist, I worked in television and so I had an office for a lot of time or a specific workplace that you have no choice but to go to. And so now I do have a choice, you know. I, can, I mean, you know, you've got a laptop, you can work anywhere. Um, and I actually quite like the variety of going to various places. Um so, uh, but in my office, if I am sat at my office, um, it's in the basement. I live in a flat in a big old building in Brighton. Um, and weirdly, even though it's the first floor flat, we've got the basement as well. I don't know why, how it was cut, but anyway. So in the basement, there's a little office. And what's really good about it is there's no internet down there. Uh, none. You know, I've, I've even sort of with my phone wandered around trying to get a signal and it's nothing. There's no, it's, it's like in the deep in the chalk of Brighton. Um, and so I don't get internet, which is really useful if you're trying to write something because the internet is just endlessly distracting. And to the left slightly, there's a speaker. Uh, to the right slightly, there's another speaker and a stack of CDs. Because there's no internet, you see, down there, I can't even do the streaming of the Apple Music or the Spotify. So, like, I've had to go old school um, and either play stuff off my laptop or um, actually play CDs on a CD player, uh, which is actually quite useful. I use them as timing devices because, you know, an album, a good old-fashioned album, it's around about 40, 45, 50 minutes, which is a, about the right amount of time you can concentrate without your brain starting to kind of, you know, sort of sabotage you. That's in the office, though. So where That's do you office. tend to write? Well, I've been doing a lot of travelling this year, so I've been writing on trains and in planes and in waiting rooms and airports and various things, in transit and in waiting for things. Um, uh, hotel rooms are quite good for writing because they're quite anonymous and you just sort of sit there and, you know, they, they generally have nothing to look at. I also uh, used to, but slightly less now, uh, write in a cafe around the corner from where I now live in Brighton. Uh, so about a year and a bit ago, we moved back to Brighton. I used to drop my eldest two off at the school, which is in Brighton, then sit in this cafe around the corner, Cafe Marmalade, which is acknowledged in uh, Solomon Creed, um, and literally sit there all day until it was time to pick them up. Uh, so I'd have coffee there, and then I'd have mid-morning tea, then I'd have lunch, then I'd have afternoon tea, and then I'd go. And it got to the point where I would sit in a table, you know, a nice spread-out table at the beginning of the day, and then as it got busier, I'd just feel more and more guilty, and so then I'd move to a smaller table, and then I'd end up perching on one of those little benches, sort of, you know, <laughs> where, you, 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 where you're supposed to just, like, stand and wait for your coffee. But if you're writing a series of books, which, which you have been doing so far... Yep. Uh, I guess then you're always writing to a deadline. Do you not then need to kind of break up your time so you know where you need to be in your story at what point of the year? 
Uh, yes, there's there's a very simple calculation you do. Um, you get a contract which tells you when you need to deliver a book and how long it needs to be. And you look at the calendar and work out how many days between where you are now and where that deadline is. And you divide the number of words by days. And so initially you look at it and you go, oh, I just need to write 150 words a day. That's, like, <laughs> that's easy. Then you'll sort of do research and, you know, miss days and do some outlining. And, and so your word count doesn't go up. So then you'll do the calculation again, maybe a couple of months down the line. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, 600 words a day to hit deadline. And you go, okay, that's still that's two pages. That's fine. I can do that. Uh, and then the hits a point where you realize you just need to kind of wake up and start writing and and do thousands of words a day and to get it and i you know most of the time i do get there um not always um it's a strange process writing or anything creative is you you kind of you know what you need to produce at the end but the process by which you get there is not entirely under your control or you you know you hit a point where you realize you really do need to research something in order to make the next bit work um or the other thing that happens is you know even if you've got an outline uh, which i tend to you um you reach normally at just the third fourth you know you've set everything up and developed everything and it's not quite the end so it's that little section that links the beginning to the end is a is bagging as there's, there's problems with it and you need to do something and often the thing that you thought would work when you were outlining it in abstract months earlier just doesn't work anymore because the characters have developed and things have happened and extra twists have happened um so often you at that point you need to go back and rewrite something earlier on in order to open something up in that section that's going to make it work i think it's time for the the, the origin story this this origin story is one of the most romantic origin stories you will find from any writer. Strap yourself in. I know, it kind of sounds made up, um, but it's not. But, okay, so I worked in television, as I said. Um, and I'd always wanted to um, write something big. So when I was younger, I'd started off writing screenplays and trying to get them made and made short films. And because I was doing film stuff, I ended up having this career in television because I, you know, I got paid for doing TV stuff. And so then this part-time job of doing bits of TV so that to fund the writing ended up as this 20-year career. So I was approaching my 40th birthday, which obviously is the traditional time of assessing where you are in life. And I just... I kind of really, I realised it was never going to happen. You know, the novel or the big story or whatever was never going to happen because doing something full-on creative, uh, there's nothing in the tank. So, you know, to try and write a novel at the end of a day. I mean, I know the people who do things like lawyers, for example, often write books uh, and become novelists by writing two or three books in their spare time. Or, you know, they'll go to chambers and, and be an hour ahead of when they're supposed to be there and they'll write something. Um, but I, I always feel with that, this is this massive pent-up creative energy that's not being released. Because their job is in no they, way creative. Well, it's kind of creative, but in a very narrow yeah. way. And the language they use is, is, is you know, when you're writing a book, you, you're d often deliberately choosing ambiguous language to describe things, partly because that's how we talk, and also because you want to be disguising something, so it could go one or two ways. If you're writing a legal thing, it's got to be absolutely, you know, there's no ambiguity. It's kind of, this word means this, and this phrase means this. So it's a totally different thing. So I can totally see how you'd want to write a book to free yourself. But if I, you know, I was doing creative stuff where all of that was coming into play anyway and producing big series and being in late-night edits and being on location, you know, there was no real energy left. So I figured if I was ever going to do it, um, I needed to 
you know, do it honestly. And if it failed, fail honestly. So I quit my job. Um, I said, I thought I could give myself six months to try and write something. I said to my wife, uh, why don't we go on an adventure, on a little family adventure? So we saved up for a bit and then we uh, rented our place out, our flat out in Brighton and rented a house in the south of France, uh, in the Tarn. Um, so that was the plan. But also to make the money last, because, you know, the rental of the flat in Brighton was, was, was funding it partly, we went in the depths of winter where no one wants to go to south france and we've realized why people don't want to go to the depth because it's really cold and i had two or three ideas of uh books i was going to write i'd sort of been noodling around with some things and i thought six months i knew i could write because you know being a working in tv i'd, I'd, I'd been creative to order so we set off to our house in france on the 1st of december 2007 i think um the plan was go on the midnight ferry from new haven to dieppe and then drive down the eight or nine hours to the house make it all nice and then day later they all fly out but it's december the first in the channel and so there's a a massive gale blows up and we didn't sleep at all but when you know we arrived in dieppe just glad that we weren't dead and as we were driving in we come about 40 minutes inland from uh, new haven is is, uh, rouen uh, from dieppe is rouen um and as we pulled in um i saw the the uh, spire of rouen cathedral which is very kind of needly sort of strange tower of a thing um and a a quote that i listened to ages ago came into or read somewhere and really liked came into my head which is a man is a god in ruins the ralph waldo emerson quote um and there was something about that and the play on words of ruin ruin and ruin that just lodged in my head and then uh, so we slept for a few hours and i got back in the van and we drove and about 10 minutes outside of Rouen the radio broke so for eight nine hour drive all I had in my head to entertain myself was the scenery uh, and this image of the spire of Rouen Cathedral and this quote going around in my head and by the end of that journey um, I had the end of what turned out to be Sanctus so at the end of that six months uh, I'd written about 140 pages and we went back to England broke and I got a job back at the TV company that I'd retired uh, that I'd resigned from um, on a much lower level and much lower pay, but I'd had the start of the book, and so I over the next year I finished it, and then that's the book that became Sanctus, and I got a deal, and it was it's been translated into twenty nine languages, and um, was the biggest bestseller best selling debut thriller of two thousand and eleven. So it all worked. We'll have part two of our chat with Simon Toyne in just a sec, where we'll talk about how he analysed other novels to figure out what sold so he could make an actual career out of being a thriller writer. Stay right there. Next, we've got our distinguished diary with Charles Dickens. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage 
for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Time for Distinguished Diaries then, where we look at a weird and wonderful writing routine from someone huge in history. Today, it's Charles Dickens. Now, we know about Charles Dickens, obviously. Uh, Great Expectations, A Christmas Carol, Oliver Twist. So this isn't news, but it is a real point to make of just how prolific he was as a simple writer of words. Of the 15 novels that he wrote, 10 were longer than 800 pages. And to get all those words down, he needed specific things in place, right? One of those was absolute quiet. In one of the houses that he wrote, he had a second store to the study built in so he could block out the noise. And the study that he wrote inside, it needed to be meticulously arranged as well. He needed the desk in front of the window. Uh, He needed goose quill pens, very fancy blue ink as well to write with. On the desk there needed to be a vase of fresh flowers, two bronze statues on there as well. One was of a toad and the other were of some dogs. And his routine was strict as well. He rose at seven o'clock, at eight he had breakfast, and at nine, bam, there he was in his study with his blue goose quill pen writing. At two o'clock he finished his work for the day, on paper that is, because he took a three-hour walk around London to think about his work and to come up with ideas. I wonder how far he got on that journey around town. I mean, today it would take you about three hours just to weave through the tourists on Regent Street. On his walk, he was pondering his tale and he was searching for pictures to write with. And on returning, he was said to be revitalized and he had the personification of energy. Brilliant phrase. He needed all that energy as well. On an ordinary day, he would write down 2000 words easily, no issue. During a particularly uh, bountiful time of imagination, in a frenzy, he could get 4,000 words done. But, I mean, no one's perfect. And it's always good to know when you're struggling writing that there would be days he would write nothing at all. It's always good to know, isn't it, that even the most accomplished writers in history, like Charles Dickens, occasionally had their off days. As always with Distinguished Diaries, uh, I need to hand a massive thanks out to Mason Curry's brilliant book, Daily Rituals. If you've got any weird interest in this thing that I've decided to dedicate a whole podcast to, that is the book you need to get hold of. Right, it's back to part two of our writer's routine chat with the author Simon Toyne. He's one of the UK's most successful thriller writers. Uh, His debut novel, Sanctus, was published in so many different languages all over the world. Uh, We'll talk to him about that. We'll find out how he made sure that his stories would sell well. And also, at what point he starts to know who the bad guys are. Here's 
what I'm now interested in is so you've you've been to Rouen, you've 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 seen the the tall spindly spire of the cathedral, and then you've got your idea of how the first book ends. Now, what I found fascinating about the series is it hugely grows into something you don't think it's going to become. In the second book, there's so many um, ideas, religious ideas that you don't really get is happening. So, at what point? Are they creeping into your mind? What I guess I'm asking, in a very, very incongruous way, is are you thinking of it book by book, or in a Harry Potter-esque way, do you know how the whole arc of one stories one, two, and three are happening? Uh, well, when I uh, was planning Sanctus, you know, I had no deal. I didn't know anyone in publishing. And so I was just trying to write a really good thriller. Uh, so... All of my thinking was it was going to be a self-contained book um, that when it finished, that was it. I wasn't sort of planning a series or a trilogy or anything. Um, The central premise is, so at the start, a guy climbs to the top of this uh, monastery um, in the middle of this town called Ruin um, in southern Turkey. Um, And it's a bit of a kind of religious um, theme park of a place now. It's it's got huge history. And there's all these rumours surrounding it, and particularly this place called the Citadel, which is this monastery in the centre of it that's built into this Tower of Rock, um, that it contains some sacrament, some relic upon which, a foundation, you know, some magical thing upon which all of Western religion has been built. Anyway, so it starts off and a monk climbs to the top, makes a symbol of the cross with his body um and then falls to his death um and there's uh, and he falls in such a way that he just falls outside the jurisdiction of the monastery and so um the city police take over and there's an uh, autopsy and in his body they find that he swallowed some things obviously clues um one of which is a strip of leather with some numbers etched on it and initially they think they are uh verses from the bible but they suddenly realize actually it's much more simple than that it's a phone number (laughs) so they dial the phone number and get through to a woman in america who's a journalist who turns out to be the sister of this guy this monk who fell to his death and at that point you know as a reader you are going to find out what the sacrament is and and that was the engine of the book it's like here's a massive secret supposedly held in this place no one knows what it is or even if it exists you know as a reader you are going to find out what that thing is by the end of that book so my problem with the first book was once you do find out what that is right at the end of the book the book is over it's done so the problem with the first book when i did my first draft was having to tie up all those loose ends very quickly once you find out what the sacrament is so i did that um and the way i did it was a sort of um epilogue that was uh, you know one year later um and you see the, the the citadel and you see the various people and you can see that that person didn't die and they're okay now and you can kind of pay off a few things and say well we discovered this and this and this and whatever and it kind of worked in terms of just wrapping up everything very quickly but it was very unsatisfying in terms of the characters who were you know who were still around when um i eventually sold the book um my editor said two things one what do you want to write next and two we don't really like the ending uh, and so i was like okay well i hadn't really thought about what to write next but and the ending well and that's when i said oh but i've uh, you know there were loads of other ideas that i didn't quite manage to fit into this uh, that are you know expand the whole, the story of the, the citadel and the sacrament all the people are in there and the ramifications of uh, you know once you've discovered what the sacrament is how would that affect the rest of the world and various things um 
And so and in talking about it, I realized there was another book in it. And actually, this epilogue of, a, of one year later, I could, rather than just doing an epilogue and jumping one year later, I could write a book that filled in that time. And then in the process of figuring out how to do that, I realized what I did was I, I wrote the outline of what turned into book three. But I don't quite know how to get from the end of the book that I've just written to this new book so then I started figuring it out and my and these this linking got longer and longer and longer and then until that became a book <laughs> so then this so this one this five or six page epilogue of one year later <clears throat> explain loads of stuff turned into two whole books religious thriller uh, is is a huge genre and it's it's it's, it's so famous now for, for people like Dan Brown what did you feel about getting involved with your first book being in that genre when you put it out there? Um, well... Were you at all uh, nervous uh, about getting involved in something that can be so controversial and also so, although yours weren't, so critically uh, hated? Um well no i mean not really i mean the thing is that wherever you write if you're writing anything you, you inevitably there'll be some book that's gone before and sometimes there's a whole bunch of books that have gone before and you know they create their own little genre or subgenre you know i was i i came from commercial tv so i wanted to write something commercial you know i, I wanted to write something that would potentially pay the bills so inevitably you know the sensible thing to do in that instance is to look at something that's sold uh, and book and therefore books that people want to read and like to read because the chances are if you write a good book in that same genre they might want to read yours too um so i've never been scared of you know writing within the conventions of a genre in some ways it, they're quite useful because you you just go oh here's a set of rules this these are the elements that this needs to include so actually I, I i understand those and i can kind of write a little list and go right it's got that it's got that it's got that but and this has got and hopefully it's got a really great and surprising plot in the middle of it so you are doing it that analytically yeah, when totally, you yeah. when you you think right uh, so i'm writing a thriller i need short chapters i need every single chapter to end with this going to make me the reader want to read to the next chapter are you you're seriously thinking that thoroughly and then analyzing how that works yeah totally um i remember i came from tv and and my last job in tv was um i was a development exec so i was coming up with new shows but largely coming up with new shows and, and commercial shows as well you know sort of shows that are going to be returnable series something that's going to play in prime time something that the advertisers are going to like um i and a lot of that is looking at the shows that are working or shows that have worked before and pulling them apart and figuring out how they work and forensically doing it as well, literally looking at something and going, right, where do the titles come in? How long are they? Uh, how long's that first part? How long's the longest scene? How many characters of stories have we got going at any one point? Um, you know what the music's doing whether it's minor key or major key you know that level of detail of like what works um because a lot of the time you know the stuff and if you pull things apart i mean look at you know cinema in particular if you look at the way cinema works everything's three-act structure you know it's like the first act that leaves ends up to on a cliffhanger goes up to another thing where there's a few plot twists there's a central point where everything sort of if it's been going up it starts coming down if it's been going down it starts coming up then you have the break at the end of that and then the big uh, you know part end part and and the you if you look at the i've studied i'm quite obsessed with um 
narrative structures. You could look at this stuff, and it's it goes back to Arist- Aristotle uh, wrote, you know, with his poetics, he's outlined how to write drama, and it's the three-act structure. And he called it, uh, I can't remember, something, something, and catastrophe is the third act. And then uh, you go through, and Hegel did the same, and kind of called it, and there was three acts again, but he called it the same. And then you get through to, um, you know, sort of modern structure with, um, you know, Joseph Campbell famously did it. He looked at all of the uh, fairy tales and all the great stories and worked out this uh, monomyth. You know, they all follow the same pattern. And, And then George Lucas and people like that were really into Joseph Campbell and created narratives based on the same thing but again if you look at it it breaks down into the three-act structure beginning middle and end introduction confrontation resolution there's this kind of slight toxic myth i think of writers that somehow you've just got to kind of be you know a prisoner to the muse and that you know you've just got to write the best story possible and if you read if you're thinking commercially then somehow you're not doing it properly and somehow you've kind of sold out whatever it's like why because you know as far as i'm concerned i'm telling stories when i when i wrote screenplays i was telling stories when i worked for 20 years in television i was telling stories now i write books and i'm telling stories and so to kind of figure out a story that loads of people are going to like is not necessarily selling out it's about being wanting to be really good storyteller so no i absolutely kind of went and tried to write a, a thriller uh, in a pop and a, a genre that was pop- popular at that time because of the dan brown books i want one last sanctus question if i may and it's um <clears throat> it's a bit of a spoiler one so spoiler uh, so stop listening if you haven't read the book now I'm not going to give too much of the details about because it, it's not really. It is a spoiler in that it's who the bad guy is. But for me, that wasn't the most interesting thing in what was going on. It was the huge themes, the huge cosmological themes that's happening in there. Uh, but basically, we find out in the end of the final book, The Tower, that the villain of the piece, uh, Nova Sancti, uh, is a is a geek called Merryweather. And it turns out that he is the first person uh, who is mentioned. The very first word of the book is his name. How did that happen? Was that a case of you being surprised and then you reworking it? Or did you know that the whole way through? No, that was me being surprised by the story. Uh, so I started off so the tower really is it kind of takes the themes from the first book into um, right up to the modern day and so it starts off with a cyber attack on the Hubble Space Telescope which is looking at the deepest furthest known space and um and lots of people think it's a heresy you know they say that effectively what we're trying to do is look at you know beyond our known universe to gaze upon the face of god the way i tied it in with a modern thriller is that there is a cyber attack uh on this on the space telescope so rather than looking out to the farthest reaches of space it turns around and looks at, and looks down on earth so it's kind of you know it's looking not at god but at man um and the guy who happens to be on duty at the time when this thing happens happens um is this yeah cosmological geek who works at the um at the space control center he's like a 50s throwback isn't he yeah yeah and he you know he wears knitted ties and he's you know he's buttoned down and wears horn rimmed glasses and then you know and his heroes are all the apollo the guys who did the apollo missions and all this sort of stuff uh, and it turns out that what hub they find this data that the hubble had seen and it looks like a countdown 
Um, but there's all these theories, you know, that it gets out that it's countdown to the end of times because we've looked upon the same, you know, we've dared to look upon the face of God and the big heresy and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, and all the way through, there's an idea of, so the Sanctus, uh, which are this ancient order of monks that looked after the sacrament in the first book, have all been wiped out pretty much uh, in the first two books. Um, and so there's this new guy who's mentioned a couple of times, you know, you see him performing the same rituals that they did called the Nova Sanctus so it's, it's the new Sancti effectively uh, but you don't know who he is and you you know all the way through you're thinking could be this guy and and I kind of knew I needed this guy but I didn't know who he was going to be uh, at what I, point did you find out who it was um, I kind of I think I, th- I can't remember exactly, but I think I was um, about halfway through it or maybe even two thirds of the way through it when it suddenly occurred to me who the perfect person to make this person would be. Um, and also that thing of like how satisfying it would be if you see this guy right at the beginning and then he kind of pops up and you just totally forget, you know, he's there literally on page line one, page one. He's there and it's, you know, and but as you say, it's not the main mystery, really. I mean, there's all these other mysteries in it. You know, that's one of them. Um But then, you know, the revelation of who he is, it comes at the end, right, you know, in this big kind of sort of like surprise moment when you see him and you, you kind of you you realize who he is at the same time as the other people realize who he must be and you know and then there's this you know scene going on where yeah it's all very tense no more spoilers but yeah so that was absolutely a moment where the story surprised me um and i just had that idea and thought oh yeah that's good writing books is not like a lot of other things in that um you don't consciously get better at it I think you do get better at it, but it doesn't, it's not conscious, you know, because you struggle. Every book is a struggle. Every scene is a struggle. Every character is a struggle. You know, you sort of, uh, you get it wrong. Most of it is getting it wrong and making mistakes and then just finding a good bit and working on that. Um, And so what I've come to terms with is unlike, you know, playing football or something like that, where you more the you play, the fitter you get and the more skills you have and you can tell. Uh, writing is you know when you write a book and finish a book at the end of it all you've really learned how to do is how to write that book and so when you start a new book all the bets are off you know there are certain things you've got like in terms of just natural pacing or character or dialogue or whatever that you can improve at but that sort of details actually writing the book you have to figure it out every single time I don't think I could read any of my older stuff and look at it and just go oh yeah no i can see what i was doing there and i'm better at that now or whatever i'd just be looking at it wincing and just going oh god i'm sure i'd probably want to re you know change everything i think this is a the dorothy parker um saying which is really good she says you know i can't I, I can never write five words but i have to change seven of them and i think that's writing you know you just you just, and you constantly want to change it so I've learned that and I've come to terms with that I think another thing I have learned about writing having now done five is that there is always a point roughly halfway through around about the 50 60,000 word mark where you absolutely are convinced that that the idea that you thought was good enough to be a book is the worst idea anyone's ever had and you need to rewrite it all and you should just stop and you don't know what you were thinking and you don't know how you're going to finish it because you know you've got to write a roughly the same amount that you've already written that all needs rewriting uh, and I've realised not only through my own experience but talking to other writers that that happens every single time and you just again that goes to the point my own advice is you just need to ignore it at that point and just keep writing knowing in the full knowledge that it's rubbish and no one will ever read it and it's terrible 
terrible anyway but just get to the end point because then you can put it to one side and get drunk and do something else and then you know print it out and then read it with sort of one eye closed sort of preparing to wince and discover that it's not that bad yes it needs work and you know it's waffly in some places and some stuff doesn't make sense but it's not as bad as you thought it was 60,000 words in when you thought it was the worst thing ever a massive thank you then to Simon Toyne for coming on The Writer's Routine. He's a very busy man and he managed to find the time for this interview in between filming his CBS TV show Written in Blood and also writing a brand new book too. So yeah, that six month sabbatical to France has definitely paid off for him. The second in the Solomon Creed series as well is called The Boy Who Saw. It's brand new and you can pick it up right now. And thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can tweet in and give us a follow. We are at WritersPod. You can email us, writersroutine at gmail.com. And make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes because we're back next week with an author who has written like an encyclopedia on gender equality. I promise it's completely different to anything you've read before. It's written by David Devere and we'll get his writing routine on next week's show. I will see you then. Goodbye. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.